Hello, and welcome to the My Messy Church podcast. Each week, we'll be going through your questions from the weekend services and doing our best to present answers from a biblical perspective. If you haven't yet listened to the weekend sermon, I want to encourage you to head over to curtislake.org backslash media for context of what we will be discussing today. We love getting your questions and cannot wait to grow together. So without further ado, let's dive into My Messy Church. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the My Messy Church podcast. Um, so I'll just tell you right from the beginning here, I really blew it this weekend. Uh, I forgot in second service to remind everybody about our Q&A forum. And so I, I don't think we really had any participation on that. So we have just one, two, three, four, five questions this week. But don't worry. I'm sure I can spend 20 minutes on each of them, uh, fill out the hour, right? I mean, I want to get paid. So no, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So first question, uh, that we got this week is, is it possible to ask Ricky what verse or passage encourages him when he's in a tough season? Like he referenced this morning. Um, so for those of you that don't know, uh, we had a, a, a longtime friend of our church, Ricky Bolden, uh, who's from DC and, uh, lives down there and is in ministry there. Uh, he was up because he was going to be our special guest speaker for, uh, our global outreach auction. And so he was in our services and we had him come up and just kind of greet everybody. Uh, again, most people in our church, uh, know him and are familiar with him. And, uh, so it was really nice to have him there. And, uh, and so I did actually shoot him a message and said, uh, gave him this question. And, uh, he responded back that, uh, one of his favorite verses is, uh, Philippians one verse six. So I thought I'd just maybe read uh, a little bit of this and he didn't give me a whole lot, uh, necessarily to go on. So I'm going to just speak for Ricky here for a moment, but, uh, Philippians one, uh, starting verse three, Paul says, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And here's verse six. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, the, a lot of people I, I know um, think very fondly of this verse when it comes to this idea that uh, that so much of our lives, you know, when we give our lives in surrender to, to Jesus, that there is, there's a work that he is doing in our lives, uh, from the moment that we surrender to him and on through our lives. In fact, even prior to our surrendering our lives, you could certainly make the case that Jesus is kind of at work, uh, in the life, drawing, drawing people to him. And, but anyway, there's so much of this walk of the, uh, of the Christian has much to do with the work that Jesus is doing in our lives as well. And there's this beautiful idea here kind of carried out that, you know, God began this work in us and he is going to see it through to its very end. Um, I will, because uh, those of you who've been around me for any length of time, you know that so much of what's in my heart, uh, when it comes to, uh, the, you know, the, like the particular calling that, you know, God has me fulfilling right now as a pastor of a church is to see how our spiritual lives are played out in community. And, and, uh, while I think it's okay to, to read a verse like this and to receive it as encouragement for our individual lives and the work that God is doing us in us individually. I mean, really the, the emphasis is on like what this means for me as part of something that I am working in cooperation, uh, with, with, with other people. Right. Um, so what Paul is actually praising God here for and thanking God for is the work that God was doing in the body of believers at the church in Ephesus, right? The partnership that not a single person was committing themselves to, to Paul, but rather it was the whole church and how the church had come alongside uh, the Apostle Paul and the work and the labor uh, that he was doing. It, it's not too unlike, I think, the relationship that we have with a lot of our global outreach partners. Like there is this sense in which while I may not be, you know, feet on the ground in Ethiopia or in Asia or uh, in Romania or in uh, some of the South American countries 
that we have partners in, you know, wherever, wherever our global outreach partners in, we may not be physically proximate to the work that's being done there, but through our uh, financial support, through our correspondence and encouragement, through our commitment to praying for, and just uh, uh, being, being a partner, even from a distance, like we're part of the work that God's doing uh, in and through their lives. And so, uh, so, and, and, and that's kind of what Paul's referring to. He, like God began this work in the church of Ephesus, right? This, the, the way that they were building and expanding God's kingdom and how God was using them uh, both directly within the, um, the, the proximity of their city and, and community, but also even beyond that, God, God began a work in them and God was going to carry it out, uh, until the return of Jesus. And so, uh, that should be, I think a really encouraging, uh, thing for us to think of again. Yeah. Perfectly fine to see that, how it, what it means to us on an individual level. But when, when Paul says, um, um, when he refers to this good work that God started in you, that, that word you is really plural, right? It's you all. Uh, and so, you know, Paul's emphasis is on the work that God's doing through the church. So anyway, um, so thank you again to Ricky, uh, for encouraging us even through something like that, as well as being with us over this past weekend. All right. The next question is, what does it look like practically to live like everything is ours? Can you give some examples of what it looks like to live radically here in Sanford, Maine? Um, so the, the question here is referring to a portion of the scriptures that we were looking at this past weekend where, and I'll read it again. Uh, Paul says in verse 21 of first Corinthians chapter three, so let no one boast in human leaders for everything is yours. Okay. So that the, the, the person asking the question here is referring to that particular statement that Paul makes to the church. He says, everything is yours. And then he expounds on what that everything means. Uh, verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So like, what does this mean? And how does this actually live and play out in our lives? Uh, this idea that everything is ours. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if any of what I'm about to say will be specific to what it means for us in Sanford, Maine, but I guess um, uh, there's a there, there's kind of a, a universal aspect that may have some you know personal implications. But ultimately, I think what each of us needs to do when we hear something like this is, all right, what does it mean for me to live as if everything is mine? And like, let's break it out, right? So again, verse 22, um, this everything encompasses multiple kinds of things that Paul uses examples. So the first set he uses here is Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. So um, again, the commandment is, or the, the imperative here is, don't boast in human leaders for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. So you have to remember, Paul's referring back to the dissension that existed within the Corinthian church uh, because of people's allegiance to one particular leader over another. And it was actually creating opportunities for people to, to be proud and to boast uh, given the tribe that they were currently aligned with and, and to consider their tribe to be something better than the other tribes, uh, you know, so I'm a part of the tribe of Paul and you as a part of the tribe of Apollos, I mean, you're inferior to me. And so what Paul says here, when he says for everything is yours, what he's actually trying to get the Corinthian church to understand is that like, uh, Paul does not belong to a certain subset of the church and Apollos belongs to another certain subset of the church and Peter or Cephas belongs to another certain subset of the church. No, it's all of these leaders are in fact gifts to the church, the whole church, um, whether like there's a relational, uh, nearness that you might feel toward one particular individual or another. I mean, that's fine. That's in fact, that's to be expected. You think about, uh, the people in your church community here, 
you may have a closer relationship with me than you might have with uh, somebody else, or, or you might have a closer relationship with this person over. Yeah. So the, the nearness of relationship is not a problem. The, the issue is, well, are there these tribal factions that are being created out of a, a divisive kind of allegiance that people are, you know, are these cliques, for instance, being formed or these little uh, privatized groups that uh, are like, okay, well, this is our group and, and, uh, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna kind of look down on other groups as something that's inferior to ours. No, Paul says like the, uh, all of these leaders are their gifts to the church. So what might that mean for us? Uh, I, I did share uh, a little bit of uh, my heart, what I hope would um, would kind of play out when it comes to the way we see ourselves as a church among churches in our community. So, for instance, you could you could look at a catalog a catalog of the various gospel preaching churches that we have within a stone's throw uh, of, of our church, right? Like Curtis Lake Church is not the only gospel preaching church in Sanford. Uh, or if you expand even beyond Sanford, I mean, in a certain radius, there's lots and lots of gospel preaching churches. I think there has been oftentimes a tendency to, you know, for people to think about their church as being, um, as being the best church. And, and again, like the, it's okay to have a, deep affection for your church. In fact, I think you ought to have a deep affection for the community of faith that you have found your place to belong and place to participate in, place to invest in, right? So th- the feeling of that is, is is natural. What ought not to happen is uh, there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be jealousies or rivalries that are created um, among the churches. And it's just, it's really easy for us to do that because we're used to living in hyper-competitive environments, uh, that, uh, you know, everybody's sort of like trying to jockey for the first position, uh, for whatever it is that they're doing. Right. So we see this in business and industry, like everybody wants to be the best at what they do. And so uh, this can kind of come into the, the the world of the kingdom of Jesus, where you have bodies of believers, right? Churches, individual churches, you know, all trying to kind of be the best and, um, and, and maybe even having a, a, an unhealthy sense of pride for the way they see themselves over and against other churches that are at the end of the day that are still part of and contributing to the overall kingdom of Jesus. And so instead of seeing like how great we are or how great of a job we're doing at, at, at being a place where people can experience the kingdom of Christ and, 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 and not even have any real appreciation for how God might be working through other groups of Christians, even within our local community, like that's not, it's, it's, it's not the right, it's not the right attitude. Um, we ought to be, we ought to have a deep affection for how God is working through uh, other bodies of believers, like how God is communicating his word through, uh, through other preachers, through other leaders, how God is raising up within the bodies of Christ in our community, uh, people who will uh, will work to incarnate the love of God in their community. That that each of us are uh, have opportunities that might differ from one another, and and so while we might experience in our particular church uh, the way that a diverse membership is going to contribute to the kingdom of God, that's really a microcosm of how then if you expand that out to how how God is using. Uh, uh, you know, Calvary Baptist, um, how God is using, um, help me Shannon, like, uh, Mercy Chapel, uh, Pleasant Street Baptist. I drove by, uh, First Baptist Church, you know, downtown, uh, a lot of churches in our community, many of which I, I don't really know what's going on there. I don't know. I don't know much about the, the, the inner workings of, uh, of what church, what, what, what it might look like to be a part of those churches. But I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm praying that, that God is, that God is revealing Himself in in really really powerful ways, even within those church communities. It's like I, we don't have to have every single Christian 
that's in our community come to Curtis Lake Church. Um, what we ought to hope and pray for is that God will use um, each of us in our, you know, playing our respective roles to expand his kingdom, right? So, so that's one way. And then Paul goes on to say that, um, in, again, in this everything is yours comment, he says the world is yours, the whole world belongs to you. Uh, so what, is, what does that mean to me here? Uh, well, probably it, it, it means that I should, I, I should be having a, uh, a decreasing affection for trying to get, right? We use the idea of, uh, of striving in this life, that the way we come into our lives as we grow in consciousness, as we, we strive, in, 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 and that striving looks different. Uh, for different people based on their circumstances. But that's what we bring to the table is a, a striving kind of life. And so when it comes to the world, I mean, how many of us have spent so much of our lives striving for the things of the world, striving for, for material goods, um, striving for various things that we think will make us happy or help us to feel fulfilled and satisfied, right? And so here we are, the picture I think would be of, you know, we're just reaching for and clamoring for uh, what the world may have to offer as if, you know, if we don't, if we don't get it, uh, you know, in the moment, you know, we got, we have Black Friday coming. I don't even know if Black Friday is still a thing. I heard that it's much different now than it was years ago, uh, where, you know, traditionally everybody getting up really early in the morning and making lines at the retail stores. And, uh, because, because the, there's a, there's a, there, there's only so many things that were going to be available in these Black Friday specials, right? So you had to get there early or else you were going to miss out. And I think that, Spiritually speaking, we live we live some of our lives that way. The I think this is why we tend to to overspend or spend beyond um, our means. Like we borrow against the future because we've got to have this thing today, right? Again, that's just a picture of striving for the things of this world. And Paul wants for the follower of Jesus to understand that the world is ours. Like God is. God has given us this world. He has placed us in this world, so we don't have to live with that kind of greed and selfishness, self-centeredness. Um, we're free to experience the world, you know, as God, uh, as God brings it to us. So like, let's, let's enjoy it. Um, then life, life and death are two other kind of categories of this, everything that Paul uses. So think about life again, just, um, the life that God has given me is mine, right? And it is particular to me. And I think that for a lot of people, there is this experience of wanting somebody else's life. Um, but what God's given me is he has given me my life, right? My, my whole life is mine to be lived out for his glory and his honor and according to his purposes for my life. And when I, when I find that you know, that my life is, it can be utterly fulfilling. If I, if, if I'm willing to live out my life and not try to live out the life of somebody else or try to get my life to kind of match up to, or reach the level of what somebody else's life is being, obviously that's, it's really easy to do, right? Like that's the problem with, and the reason why we're commanded to avoid covetousness, um, to not, to not have this lusting after what what is the the what are the things that other people have or the experiences that other people get to experience. No, it's like there's something really really beautiful about my life. There's really something beautiful about your life. So start living that life, and then even death. Right, um, the follower of Jesus has a different approach to death than the person who doesn't know Jesus that sees death as just something that is this sort of hopeless um, affair, right. That death marks the end. Uh, and that what is beyond that is just so utterly unknown or, or that is so utterly nothing that death is to be avoided at all costs. Um, but I think that, and many of the people that would have been, uh, living in 
Paul's day and uh, in Paul's culture, they knew they knew that life was really precious and and that death was certain. And I think there's a there's a degree to which we as you know because of our affluence and because of our our uh, um, our life expectancy, you know, thing, things have just so radically changed where and we don't, we don't expect to die in our forties or fifties. In fact, that's, that's a tragedy. Uh, and so death can sometimes be so far removed from our, our reality that, um, you know, that we, we, we might fail to see how it is. It, it is a part of, um, the whole of our lives, right? That it is as, as certain as our birth has been. So our death will ultimately be, but our death does not have to be something that is, uh, only hopeless, but rather it is, it is the thing that, that allows for us to, uh, to enter into a new sense of being, uh, with eternity. And so there's, there's even something beautiful about, the death of the saint, right? The person that is uh, pursuing a life with God. Things present are things to come, right? Um, things present, all those things that are part of my life today. How how easily do I let days just go by where I'm not living in the present moment, not living with gratitude for what is presently there, right? Because my mind is on the future. My mind is on the things that I don't have or, and the things that I wish I had and, or the things that I hope to have someday rather than just living simply in the present, living surrounded by the people that are in my life at this very moment, living with the circumstances that I am in good or bad, uh, in this very moment. Like those are, those are mine. They belong to me. They're part of my story. And I need to, um, I need to live in them. I need to embrace and engage those things. Um, while knowing that the things to come are also mine, that God is going to, according to his good grace and mercy, he's going to bring into my life exactly what I need, exactly what is appropriate for me. If I am following, if I'm living this life of following Jesus, then my future is in the hands of God as well. Um, again, circumstances that might be weighed as good or bad, circumstances that I might see as uh, less than ideal, uh, but that God looks at from the perspective of, oh, no, 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 I this may not be what you want, but this is exactly what you need. This is exactly what's going to make you into the person that I'm so wanting for you to become. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think there's just, there's this different spirit of living with a an intimate, understanding and sense of how everything is ours uh, as a follower of Jesus, that God opens up an entire world to us and doesn't want us to live in the uh, in the very limited way that so many people live their lives. He wants to open us up to all that he has for us. All right, the next question is, what does good financial stewardship look like? Um, what does good financial stewardship look like? So certainly Jesus had a lot to say about the affection that we have towards our money or towards our things. I think the Bible has plenty of wisdom and instruction when it comes. Um, I think the prevailing ethic for the Christian is simply this. It's everything I have belongs to God, right? That's that's the thing you'll hear me say over and over and over again, because, well, first of all, I'm trying to convince myself that that's true, right? Because I live... Uh, I, I don't fully embrace or live like everything I have belongs to God. I have not conquered that thing in my life. I probably never will. And my guess is most people listening to this um, might be able to appreciate that. Yeah, that's a that's a real tough one to come to this place where everything, everything I have is fully surrendered to God. So that's, again, that's that's sort of this overarching ethic that I think ought to then inform the rest of how we see what stewardship looks like. So like, let's just look at the, what is the idea of a steward, um, but that a steward is managing something that doesn't belong to them, right? So if I say that everything belongs to God, but then God hands it to me, he puts it in my charge, and now I am stewarding it. Um, 
good stewardship is going to look like managing all of that stuff in a way that would honor the person to whom it belongs. I hope that kind of makes sense. I hope that maybe forms a picture in your mind, right? So everything I have belongs to God, yet it's in my care. It's in my custody. And so God gives me both the privilege and the responsibility of now stewarding it, of, of, of using it in a way that is going to reflect his desires. So like I have, I have all kinds of desires when it comes to money, like my money, what I would call my money, um, uh, what I would call my things. Like I have all kinds of desires about those, right? Like I, um, uh, I have a car. I don't ever want to see that car get scratched or dented, right? That's a, that's a particular desire. I want it to, I want it to stay nice, say, um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of affection I might have toward something like that. Same might be said of, uh, you know, my house, of your house, right? It's like, I want my lawn to look such and such. I, I want to have uh, the X amount of dollars sitting in my bank account. I want to have this much, right? All these things that I could have desires about when it comes to this stuff. And it's really easy because of my desires. It, those desires can actually get in the way of actually remembering. And that's why I have to be reminded over and over and over again. It's like, oh, wait a minute, this is all God's. Um, like when I go to the store and I buy something for myself or for somebody else, um, mostly for myself, when I do that, like, am, am I, am I, is, is the, is that purchase being undergirded by an appreciation for, okay, now this money is God's, right? It belongs to him. I, I'm a steward of it. Does that, you know, does, is that taken into consideration when I'm making this purchase for myself? So anyway, all right, everything I belongs to God. So let's let maybe share a few kind of insights or nuggets of wisdom when it comes to what good stewardship might look like. Uh, one big thing that we, you know, we have, we have taught through the years is uh, the idea of living debt-free, uh, to be as debt-free as possible. The Bible makes very, very clear that the borrower is a slave to the lender, right? When you, when you sign that uh, 30-year mortgage document, what does that mean? It means you get the privilege of living in a house that you don't actually own, right? And so that for the period of that time that you have that mortgage, you are a slave to the company or whatever, the like whoever has lended you that money. You you serve them, right? Now you go to work for them, right? That's what it means to be a slave to the lender. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make you know like an absolute statement that then you know every Christian should never have a a 30 year mortgage. Um, I'll be honest, I have a mortgage. Uh, so yeah, I'm not pointing any fingers. Uh, same thing with, uh, you know, another, uh, another thing that's pretty kind of normal again, not saying that it's good or bad, but normal is, you know, people have car payments. So what happens? Okay. Well, I buy the car, I sign that loan document. And so now I go to work for that financial company, right? That's lent me money so that I could have the privilege of driving in a car that I I think I call it mine, but I don't actually own it, right? So what what happens is at, in the degree of debt that we assume, um, it it limits future possibilities, right? It, it's what it's actually a mortgage against is our our future. and it it binds us up. It does. It makes us a servant to those to whom we are obliged until those obligations are done. So is that ideal? No, it's not. It's not ideal. Uh, and so what we ought to be pursuing is a life that is ultimately debt-free. Uh, because when we have debts, then it that really can be constricting when it comes to what say we have with our money, right? If, if, if uh, I don't know, what do they say, 30, 40% of your income, no more than that should go toward your housing costs or whatever. So yeah, if, if I spend a third of my week working for a company that has lent me money, right. And then I spend another, whatever, 10% of my week for, um, for my auto loan, like 
yeah, you can see how very, very constricting that can be. So pursue a life that is debt-free. Um, you'll often hear the, the wisdom of living within your means. And I think it's a really interesting thing to parse out uh, because I'd say that the idea of living within your means, certainly it's wise, but it might it might actually be more aligned with worldly wisdom than um, than a more sort of Christianized kind of wisdom. I mean, think about it. So to live within your means means to not spend more money than you take in, right? Living within your means means I'm not going further into debt or I'm not assuming debt because whatever money I'm making, that's the money that limits my spending. I'm not using a credit card uh, to purchase things that I don't have money for, right? I'm in essence paying cash for things in the present moment. So I'm always maintaining that balance. All right, well, that that's good, but is that does that even actually meet the ideal of stewardship, like Christian stewardship? I I'd, I'd suggest that it probably doesn't, right? Because if I'm if I'm only living within my means, then that might mean that I'm not actually able to live generously, sacrificially. Uh, so, in other words, like let's say, yeah, I only spend as much money as I take in, but I spend all that money on myself. Does that does that make the grade? for, you know, truly living, you know, as a steward of, you know, what God has given me? Again, probably not. And I, I get everybody's circumstances are different, right? We we are where we are when it comes to our money. And some of us are in a place where, um, where you know, things are really, really unhealthy and crazy and chaotic. And it's just like we are, we are one minor emergency away from just complete financial meltdown. I get that, right? Lots of, lots and lots and lots of grace, uh, when it comes to growing in this area, but ideally we ought to be growing and having our desires and our, our minds transformed away from this idea that, okay, well, Hey, as long as I, as long as I take care of all my responsibilities, uh, then I can just do whatever I want with my money. I think, um, I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to, we need, first of all, we need to realize um, and then be very, very honest with how much control our money and our possessions actually have on us. Like you might be listening to this and you think, oh yeah, my money doesn't have any control on me. My possessions don't have any control of me. It's like, okay, you know, really? Um, I guess would be my pushback. I, I think that the, 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 the rich young man that came to Jesus looking for, uh, a, better understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus, he probably thought the same thing about himself. He probably had no real awareness of how much control his money had on him and 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 wouldn't until, until Jesus called him out on it, right? Jesus said, hey, you want to follow me? Then sell everything you have, give the money away to the poor, and then come and follow me. Like he, he told the man, I want you to, I want you to come and like, you want to follow me? Literally, come and follow me. Guess what? We're not we're not carrying around all of our possessions or titles to our to the things that we own and and our bank account statements and our investment accounts, all that stuff. It's like no, you gotta you gotta leave all that behind. And of course, we know he went away from Jesus sad, right? Because of all that he had, and that revealed that he was actually controlled by the things that he owned. That parable that Jesus talks about the guy who. Um, uh, he he had an especially good season uh, on his farm, and and all that he harvested was more than what the barns that he had could accommodate. And so, uh, rather than just give away everything that was extra and beyond as a sort of a gesture of generosity, he says, "No, you know what I'll do is I'll just tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns and store all this stuff, and then I'll and then I'll just." kick back and take it easy for the rest of my life. And again, I think he would have, he probably wouldn't have been able to see how much control his might, like he probably felt like he was very in control. Um, like, look how, look how well I've managed all of my stuff, right? I tore down my barns, I built bigger barns and now, now I've got it made. Right. And so a lot of people have the attitude that, that, all right, I've, I've done it. I've made it. Yeah. I'm, and, and again, like failed to see just how much control our, our stuff has on me. This, when it comes to our, when it comes to our money, when it comes to 
our material possessions. It, it is at the end of the day, it's a truly spiritual matter. And so in order for us to deal with this on a spiritual level, like a lot of times we have to do something. We have to, we have to break cycles in our lives. Um, and so one thing that we'll talk about when it comes to managing or stewarding our money is you've got to, you've got to give it away. <laughs> You have to, you have to, you have to give it away. You have to be generous. Um, one of my really good friends, uh, I used to love how he would talk about this all the time. And he was just, he was so honest about it that like he, and he was, he was, he was very, very generous. He and his, he, he and his wife, his wife, he would talk about his wife, how she had like no attachment to their stuff. Uh, there would never, there would never be a time where they'd have a conversation where he'd say, you know, I really think we ought to. And that she would say, no, I don't think we ought to. She was, he would describe her as she never had a problem uh, giving, she'd give the house away <laughs> if given the opportunity to. Uh, but th this was an area where it was more challenging for him, but he'd learn a lot over the years of, uh, of just, you know, how God was breaking that in him. And so he, he could describe, you know, there'd be a time where, uh, he just have a, uh, he'd be sort of getting back to growing attached to, I don't know, the, the, the checking account balance was just kind of going up and up and he could find, he could actually feel his affections for that, um, for the money, for the, for the stuff to be growing. And he knew the thing he had to do is he had to just like, he had to write a check. <laughs> um, and so he'd write a check and it's like, whew, right. And it would just break him uh, of that. And so we need that. We need that. Um, we have to, we, we have to learn what it means to be truly generous. The reality is most of us, we live, uh, we live out of our, um, we live out of our wealth, right? We live out of our extra, uh, many of us find ourselves in circumstances where, you know, we can, we can, we can give away, um, what would look like to the ordinary person, uh, a generous, a really, really generous amount of money. Uh, but it, like if we're not giving away what we have at a point where it feels like something like where it hurts a little, then we just, we haven't done it enough. So give it away, be generous. Uh, we should be, I think we should be working toward a simpler life, right? As life goes on, there's a tendency for the, the house to get bigger, the barns to get bigger, everything to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Uh, as you, uh, those of you that, that, um, you know, are further on in years, you know, it's, you, you start out in this world, you know, coming out of high school or coming out of college, making a tiny bit of money, right? But your, your income grows and expands. Uh, and maybe even some of your responsibilities become less and less. Like Renee and I are, we're entering this season where we've got two kids out of the house and, you know, one on their way. Uh, and so all of a sudden we're going to find ourselves with fewer and fewer expenses to manage our household. And so what does that mean? Does that mean, oh, well, more vacations for us, you know, bigger house, bigger car, like bigger everything. Or ought we be orienting ourselves toward a simpler life, one that's actually finding, you know, a, a more and more stripped down version so that we have the freedom to be generous. So work toward a simpler life. And then finally, um, be accountable. I love, I've never done this. Um, I'm, I'm probably too afraid to do this, but I, I love what I've heard some people do when it comes to accountability. It's like they actually... They have a friend or two in their lives that they share their financial, like their private financial information with, and, you know, they share their budget. They share, um, I, I've heard and this might sound really extreme, but I've, I, you know, I've heard of, you know, one accountability group where, uh, they set a number, like, let's say it's a thousand dollars. And, uh, they said that, that they weren't allowed to spend a thousand dollars on anything without first sharing that with the group and, you know, getting, I don't know, permission or something like that accountability. That's pretty, that's pretty profound if we could actually do something like that, but certainly understand that we are ultimately at the end of the day, we're accountable to God, right? We are all going to stand before God and give an account for how we stewarded everything that he gave to our lives, how we stewarded the way he made us, uh, the talents that he invested in our lives, the things that we bring into this world very, very uniquely, um, how we have like shared, 
uh, our lives and our stories, how we have shared our material goods and our wealth, how we have um, how we have stewarded everything that God has given to us. So that's uh, at the end of the day, I think what good financial stewardship looks like. All right. Uh, next question is what spiritual habits do you recommend we use to remind ourselves not to rely on our own wisdom and think of ourselves as the protagonist of our story? Uh, so again, this Sunday I pointed to the reality that we, we have this, the way we kind of come into uh, a growing consciousness of ourselves is we see ourselves as the lead character in our own story, you know, and maybe, maybe at some point, you know, God becomes a, a character within our story, but that we, prior to really fully submitting and surrendering our lives to Jesus, we live as, we live as the main character. Um, some people would even live their lives as the main character and God has seen something like, as something like an antagonist to that story, you know, one that's kind of getting in the way. So how do we, how do we not do that? How do we see that our lives are actually, we're not lead characters, we're supporting characters in the grand story of God, right? The Bible is all about the unfolding story and revelation of God to us, right? We are not the main characters in scripture. God is the main character, but we are a supporting cast. How do we, how do we remind ourselves? Um, uh, this might, you know, some of these things might sound simplistic or redundant, you know, things that we talk about all the time, but they're so absolute. <laughs> you just can't get away from them. Uh, one of the things that we need to do is we have to spend time with God every single day. We have to do that. If you're really going to live a life that is becoming more and more God-centered and less self-centered, we have to spend time daily with God. We have to spend time in God's word. We have to spend time looking for what God's word is revealing about God to us. Like, how do we see God being described in the pages of scripture, wherever that may be, whether it's, you know, particular narratives, um, stories, whether it's poetry, whether it's um, the life of Jesus as uh, described in the gospels, whether it's like what we're studying right now, one of the letters that an apostle has written to the church is how do we see God uh, revealing himself through the pages of scripture? Uh, there is a podcast I'd recommend. I I only I only know of it. I haven't per personally spent any time um, interacting with it myself, but I, I I've I've listened to a podcast from the person that kind of founded it and runs it. And that's the Bible Recap podcast. So if you're looking away for a way to to like if you if you think it's hard to just open up the Bible and start reading and and get anything from it then the Bible Recap podcast might be a really, really good way to introduce you to the rhythm of spending time daily in God's Word. And I think, if I remember correctly, one of the things they really try to bring out, no matter where what the passage or the reading happens to be that day, is they, they're trying to bring out, like, what does this say about God? What is the, what is the thing about God that is being revealed through this story that, um, you know, until you've maybe disciplined yourself to really look for those things. It might be a little, it might be a little difficult. And so there's a lot of good help, uh, for that. Um, how do I, again, how do I live not as the lead character in my own life? Well, look for ways to put other people first, uh, ask God, like in that time that you spend with God, say, you know, if you can do it at the beginning of the day, if you can start your day off with some time in God's presence, like ask him, say, God, help me to help me to live in a way that is mindful of what is going on around me, the people that you're bringing into my life, the conversations that you're leading me to have with other people, the opportunities that I have to respond either negatively or positively, right? Because if I'm mindful of that, you know, maybe, maybe I could be more gracious to that person who is very, very abrasive in my life that, that just rubs me the wrong way every time I see him or her. Maybe, 
there's just a, a few encouraging words that I can offer to a person that's going to really change the trajectory of their day, right? Think about, take into consideration the world and the people around you and understand it's like, okay, I'm not first. I'm not the most important person here. I'm not the most important person in this room. The words that I want to say are not the most important words that need to be heard, right? Listen, listen in conversations, um, invite, uh, be quick to hear, right? Slow to speak. Um, just live in the present moment uh, of, you know, whatever happens to be going on around you. And then finally, uh, another spiritual kind of discipline or exercise that we've talked about from time to time and that I think is really, really helpful because it's something that you can do uh, probably, you know, multiple times a day is, uh, and it, it's, it's an old, it's a very, very traditional kind of spiritual discipline. And that is this thing called the daily examine. If you look that up, uh, examine is spelled E-X-A-M-E-N. Uh, if you look that up online, you can find all different kinds of iterations of what this might look like, but there's, there's generally around five key points. In fact, I pulled one up here. Um, number one, become present to God, right? So, uh, the encouragement is at least a couple times a day, set aside some time to quiet yourself and come into God's presence. Uh, certainly like if you could do this in the morning, that's a great time, but I, I probably most of us know that we at some point need to probably like reorient ourselves, right? Like we are, we are like, um, we're like tires that get out of alignment. And, but unfortunately it doesn't take, you know, 20,000 miles for our tires to get out of an alignment. It's just, it's, it's one simple pothole, right? That, poof, uh, that we're going to hit at some point in the day. That's going to like, even though today I, I started out with the best intentions of really trying to be focused, uh, and mindful of God's presence in my life and what God, you know, my environment and the people around me, I, I, I tried so hard to start out that way. It, it takes such a little disruption to, to disorient us from that and get us back into living very, very self-centeredly. And so there needs to be something that interrupts that and gets me back into that position, right? Of getting, uh, being reminded, uh, of being present to God. Uh, number two, recognize the gifts in your day, right? So let's say somewhere in the middle of the day, you know, you stop and you make yourself present to God. Um, reflect on, like, look back. All right. Instead of trying to think about what's happened over the last month of your life, just think back on the last few hours. Think about the people that you interacted with. Think about the environment that you found yourself in. Reflect on everything you're grateful for um, from the last time that you stopped and paused, right? Recognize, you know, where are the gifts? What, what gifts did God give me over these last few hours? And, and thank God for them. Be grateful for them. Number three, pray for grace and insight. Ask God's spirit uh, to help you not only to see what good things have transpired, but now look forward to what is about to happen over the next few hours and ask for God's grace and ask again for him to give you eyes that see like he sees and ears that hear like he hears. Um, number four, review your day. Uh, so at the end of the day, really good opportunity to kind of look back and see um, what has happened over the course of the day. Think about and try to refeel, you know, feelings that you felt rather than just quickly moving on and, um, and forgetting all about, you know, what may have happened. Uh, we have, there's a, there's a productivity guru who wrote this book called getting things done. And, um, it's kind of the bane of everybody's existence here at Curtis Lake, uh, that's on staff, right, Shana? Uh, but, uh, really some really good stuff in there. And one of the things that's part of this system of being a productive worker is, uh, both a daily review and then also a weekly review. And in that daily review, right, you you're, you actually carve out time um, and and look back. It's like, okay, here's here's the things that I wanted to get done today. Here are the things that I didn't get done, right, that then now can get moved into uh, 
priorities for the next day or maybe just like, oh, you know what? That actually wasn't that important. So I'm just going to cross that off and ignore it and um, let that go. But that daily review enables us to both reflect back on the day that was and prepare ourselves for the day that is to come. And I just, I don't, we don't do that uh, or we have a tendency not to do that when it comes to our spiritual lives, right? We just, we're just constantly running from one thing to another without any real pause and reflection or opportunity uh, to think about and to imagine like, what can tomorrow look like? You know, um, let's just say I, 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 the, the time comes and it's like, I've, I've run out of time at work. And so I, clock out if you clock out or whatever whatever that thing is that, that that ends your day and you jump in your car and you drive home and you you race to make and eat dinner and and then sit down in front of the TV until you're too tired for anything else or whatever other activities you may do at nighttime and then you brush your teeth and you go to bed. It's like, okay, yeah. I mean, that's a way to live life. That's a way to be a human, but it's not a very spiritual way to be a human. Uh, to be spiritual means to to stop, to cease from everything that is going on around, to be reflective of of your life and where you are and where God is in the middle of that. Um, it's to move away from this life that is centered on oneself and to reorient it to a life that is centered on God. And so, and that's kind of the fifth thing: look toward tomorrow. Um, like, ask Jesus for forgiveness. Realize that, okay. There, 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 here's the ways that I, I failed to kind of meet even my own expectations and ideals for myself today. Right. I, um, I, I had certain expectations. I know God like has expectations for my life and, and I, I didn't meet up to them. And so, um, fortunately as a follower of Jesus, um, I have this thing in my life called the cross, right. Where I can find forgiveness from Jesus and also strength and help and guidance for the time that is to come, right? And so there's always a look and a hope for tomorrow. Uh, and, and so, again, that's the daily examine, a uh, really good way to, I think, get ourselves more properly aligned with what God is doing in our lives. All right, and then the last question is, I'm struggling to understand what it looks like to live like a Christian. How do I know I'm doing a good enough job, especially being new to following? Um, Great question. Thank you so much for that. Um, what does it look like to live as a Christian? Again, this might sound very simplistic, but I think that it can ultimately kind of be all summed up as it's a life of following Jesus. That is the real heart of it. Uh, and that is not, that's not a pithy thing to say uh, or, or just some really, really abstract, spiritually sounding thing for our lives. No, it's it's embracing a life that seeks to follow Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, it starts with believing that, um, that the cross is worth our contemplation. So people, people are at various places when it comes to the cross and what it means to surrender to uh, the crucified Christ. But like minimally to begin embarking on this journey with Jesus is even if you don't understand the full implications of what the cross means for our lives, there has to be at least this belief that it's worth our contemplation, that the cross is something worth our coming to and standing at the foot and considering, it's like, okay, what does this mean for me that Jesus died on the cross, that he is the crucified king? What, is, what does that mean? And committing ourselves to a continued um, the contemplation of the impact that the cross wants to have on our lives, right? That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. So for the, if you think about, if you read through Jesus's life in the gospels, like what you find is a group of people that followed him around for a period of about three, three and a half years. Okay. And in that they, like they learned and discovered all kinds of things about Jesus. And there was a growing sense and a growing revelation that Jesus was something, right? In fact, at one point, Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, you are, in fact, the king. You are the son of God. They, Peter had come to understand that Jesus was something more than just simply a man or a teacher or a rabbi, right? He was, he was the very one that God had promised 
would come and deliver not only his people, but the entire world. He would redeem all of us. So Peter understood that. There was this, there was this, uh, there was this point where that was clear to Peter, but he didn't really understand what the cross was all about, right? Like when Jesus came to the cross, this is where we see Judas betraying Jesus, right, into the hands um, of the religious leaders and the Roman officials. We find when Jesus is beaten and tortured and led to carry his cross, we find the disciples all fleeing, every single one of them. We find Peter denying that he even knew Jesus three times. And so there was in this moment a failure to recognize what exactly the cross was. And then even in the aftermath of the crucifixion, they were all just, they were living like, you know, these creatures that were stunned and paralyzed because they didn't know what to do with it. But then at some point, like there was a full embrace of what the cross meant. Paul has been like all of our study of first Corinthians up to this point has centered so much on the impact of the cross. So again, whether, whether you have, um, like I would describe myself as a person who, I mean, I've been, I've been interacting with the impact of the cross now for over 40 years. Um, and, and for me, the cross is deeply significant. I have a deep affection for what it means that Jesus is my crucified King, that he died for me. Like I, I am, I am fully embracing, uh, the impact of that for my life. But as a person who's just kind of getting started on this journey, it might, you might, you might not have a, a deep affection for, or even appreciation for. And so I just say again, minimally, just believe that the cross is worth your contemplation, is worth your time considering. Um, and then study Jesus's life, study the rhythms of his life, like read through the gospels, read them over and over and over again. Um, see how Jesus interacted with people. Again, the idea is we're following Jesus. Well, we don't get to literally follow Jesus around physically, like the disciples had the advantage of, um, but we do have records of Jesus's life. We see how Jesus lived. We can see the cadence and the rhythm of his life and, and, and learn something from that. We can see how he interacted with people and learn something from that. Um, next, pursue obedience to Jesus's commands, right? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So what that means is we need to let the words that Jesus speaks into our lives, uh, again, as many of those words, they're, they're, they're chronicled for us in, in the word of God, in, in, in the gospels especially. So let those words become abrasive in certain areas of our lives, um, like where, where Jesus's words are, they become abrasive to my desires and my affections. Um, so for instance, like Jesus has some things to say about worry. So what do you do with that? Well, if you're a person that worries a lot, right? If you're a person that's consumed with worry and anxiety, like you need to let the words of Jesus become abrasive in that area of your life. You need to let them kind of rub up against and rub, you know, go against the grain of, of worry and see that, okay, there's, there's something about being a follower of Jesus where worry doesn't have or ought not to have a real place in my life. So how can I let my, how can I let his words kind of rub up against that and begin to change my desires and my affections in this particular area, right? We talked about money. Uh, money is a big topic for Jesus, right? Because Jesus knows how easy it is for money to hold on to a high percentage of our desires and our affections. And so when Jesus says something about money, instead of just sort of glossing over it and not really hearing what's being said there, we need to let those words become abrasive, right? In Christianese, we would say, we need to let God convict us, right? We need conviction. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us in those areas of our lives that are sinful, um, that are, that are not fully yielded to God, or maybe, um, maybe the topic of mercy, maybe mercy is a thing that you have a, a great difficulty, uh, in, in, you know, really committing your life to, right. You just, you're not very merciful toward people, um, merciful toward people who are different from you or merciful in the sense that you're very uncaring about the, the, the pain that another person might be experiencing, or, um, you're not, 
you're not really willing to practice real empathy for a person whose life experiences and circumstances might be different from yours. Or maybe somebody has harmed you and you're unwilling to show that person who has harmed you real mercy. Well, Jesus has a lot to say about the mercy that we practice toward other human beings. And so let those words of Jesus become abrasive to you, right? You're, you're walking with him, you're following him, you're learning at his feet. Uh, and so when Jesus speaks in these areas of our lives that are sort of maybe contradicting how our lives are currently being lived, like, okay, like bring it on. Uh, let those words convict us. Um, and then, you know, the other thing, the second part of this question says, how do I know I'm, how do I know I'm doing a good enough job? Um, listen, the Christian life is about a life that's being empowered by God's spirit. And so I would just say, hey, Give yourself a break. <laughs> um, we all need to do that. We all need to give ourselves a break. They, Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and who are heavy laden or are carrying these heavy burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, I am lowly and humble of heart. Follow me, right? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, the truth is, uh, you know, a lot of people think that, that the idea of becoming a Christian is so is something that they would never be appealing to them. Right. Because like, who would want to, who would want to, who would want to live that kind of life? Who would want to take on the burden of trying to be, you know, some goody goody and never experience all of the good things of this world. Cause that, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a really poor ref idea of what it means to live as a Christian. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard, right? I mean, think about that, right? For that person who transgresses the boundaries that God has set up for us, I, I, I get like in the world, the idea is that when you create boundaries, you're creating limitations that are going to potentially repress people, right? Or it's going to keep us from fully like living out the, the, the liberties that we have to go after every thing that we want, every pleasure that we might want to possibly consume. But the Bible tells us the way of the transgressor is hard. Now, it, it could be really easy, you know, you just sit, you know, sit on your couch and watch TV and watch um, the story of, you know, some famous person who's just, they've done it all, right? They had, they had everything available to them. And so they went after every pleasure and they fed every appetite and they never withheld anything from themselves. They wanted more sex. They went after more sex. They wanted more um, places to travel. They, they went to places that you and I would never, ever be able to access, right? They just went after one worldly pleasure after another. And it'd be easy to look at such a life and say, oh man, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great, you know, to have that kind of freedom. Um, but the truth is the way of the transgressor is hard. Like there's, there's something really hard about living that kind of life. And then Jesus on the other end, he says, listen, come to me, come to me. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He says, come and follow me and you will find rest for your souls. Right? So give yourself a break. Understand that like living this life of following Jesus, um, it's really about seeing how our desires are being transformed and changed, right? It's not just about curbing behavior or modifying behavior. It's really a work that's done in our hearts. Um, now we have to understand that like both of those things are important, right? Like both what we desire and also what we do. Um, sometimes there's a tendency to put an emphasis on one over the other uh, as if, you know, only one is important and the other one is not really that important. So you go to a place that's really, really like legalistic. Um, they're all about, uh, getting their behavior reform, right. Without any real concern about heart change. And then you might go to some other place where like all they care about is, is the heart and you know, Hey, it doesn't matter what you do as long as your heart is right. It's like, okay, well, um, neither of those things really make a whole lot of sense. It's both of these things. And so, uh, when I'm, when I'm looking to follow Jesus more closely, I have to understand that, um, all right, Jesus wants to change my desires. So how does he do that? Well, you know, he does this work. He, he uses the circumstances of my life to change my desires. But then he also gives me as a free agent um, who who has free will, he gives me the opportunity to actually sometimes just obey him, even when I don't want to, 
And when I obey God, when I don't want to, but I obey him sheerly out of being obedient, like that can have an effect on my desires, right? And so they both work together. My desires as they're being transformed are going to have something to say about my behavior and my behaviors are going to change. And then sometimes like my behaviors need to just be brought into, um, uh, you know, a place of discipline where I'm going to say no to something that, that I want. And by saying no, uh, by refusing to go after that thing, like that's going to change or have an effect on my desires, right? So these two things work symbiotically. And then finally, and I close with this, um, you want to follow Jesus, be around people who are also trying to live that same life. Be around people that also want to follow Jesus. This is so important. If you don't have people speaking into your life as a spiritual being, and you're just trying to do it on your own, you're not going to, you're not going to do well. You're not going to flourish. And when I say be around people. I don't mean just come to church on like every week. You come to church 52 times a year, right? But don't ever get into a relationship where you're getting to know people and people are getting to know you and you're actually sharing your life with other people who also want to live for Jesus. Um, I don't want to say you're not going to make it, right? That's that's probably a little too dramatic. Um, but boy, you're just, you're not going to flourish. You're not really going to experience the depths of what God has for you. And so, yeah, a Christian might find themselves growing more loosely attached to people that they were really, really good friends with, that they spent much of their time with who aren't following Jesus. They might find themselves spending more and more time with those that are following Jesus because they find that like, this is where my desires are more aligned. I don't mean, you know, um, just like uh, utterly abandon every relationship with every person that is not a follower of Jesus. No, we want to be salt and light, right? We want to make a meaningful difference in the lives of other people. We want to be a good witness to what God is doing in our lives to people who don't yet know him so that they can have uh, their own invitation into God's kingdom. But uh, I'd be remiss to just not emphasize the importance of our being in one another's lives. We need each other. Um, and so, yeah, be around people who are earnestly trying to live that life that you're pursuing as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, for tuning in. Um, really good questions. Sorry again, second service. Um, I guess you'll just have to like work twice as hard next week, but, uh, thank you. I hope you all have a, a happy Thanksgiving. Those of you that might be listening to this beforehand and we'll see you again next week. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of My Messy Church. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to head to your app store and download the Curtis Lake Church app for easy access to all of our content. Thank you so much for joining us, and we can't wait to be with you next week.